probably discovered that while meaning well or being filled with people of good intention, sometimes things don't come across that way. And as a result, misunderstandings are inevitable. I want you to consider the, these actual announcements taken from church bulletins that will help illustrate that point. Bertha Belch, missionary from Africa, will be speaking tonight at Calvary Memorial Church in Racine. Come tonight and hear Bertha Belch all the way from Africa. <laughs> Announcement in the church bulletin for a national prayer and fasting conference. Quote, the cost for attending the fasting and prayer conference includes meals. Some you got to think about. Ladies, don't forget the rummage sale. It's a chance to get rid of those things not worth keeping around the house. Oh, P.S., don't forget to bring your husbands with you. The peacemaking, the peacemaking meeting today has been canceled due to a conflict. <laughs> due to the pastor's illness, Wednesday's healing services will be discontinued until further notice. <laughs> These are two of my favorite. The low esteem support group will meet Thursday at 7 to 8.30 p.m. Please use the back door. <laughs> Boy, that would just about send you back a few days, wouldn't it? Or this one, the Weight Watchers, Weight Watchers will meet at 7 p.m. at the First Presbyterian Church. Please use large double doors at side entrance. <laughs> at the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, What is Hell? Hey, come early and listen to our choir practice. <laughs> Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. A bean burrito supper will be held on Tuesday evening in the church hall. Music to follow. <laughs> Barbara remains in the hospital, needs blood donors for more transfusions. She is also having trouble sleeping and requests tapes of Pastor Chuck's sermons. <laughs> and last but not least, the associate minister unveiled the church's new tithing campaign slogan, slogan last Sunday. Quote, I up my pledge... Now up yours. You know, some of us have felt that way before. And the point is, uh, even the best of intentions can get lost in the translation. And that's what we find in Acts chapter 6, if you want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, where we learn the importance of spiritual organization and how it was used to address a problem that had, that had arisen in the newborn church. Acts chapter 6, starting with verse 1. We read, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote our, our, ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Christians, someone once said, become very unchristlike when they get organized. 
And the remark represents one side of a long-running debate over church structure. One extreme would argue that the church should reject any kind of formal organization or structure and just kind of go with the flow of the Spirit as God's Spirit leads, just kind of go with the flow. The problem with that, or the fallacy of it is, is that it, it overlooks the truth that all creation reflects the highly organized nature of our Creator nor is it consistent with the teaching found throughout the New Testament as far as church is concerned and the function of the church. Then on the other side of it, we've got people who would structure the church like a Fortune 500 corporation. And they would have detailed organizational charts and job descriptions and boards and committees and subcommittees. And the Holy Spirit, they hope, will work within the structure that they've created and force Him into that box and say, this is our structure, now let's see what you can do through it. You know, and they, they're also the kind that struggle with things like, you know what, well, we've never done, that, done it that way before. And they underestimate, you know, the strength of the new nature and the power of the Holy Spirit. So the point is, I, I like what I read recently. I, I saw that it said that um, God so loved the world that he didn't send a committee. You know, and I like the simplicity of that statement. You know, the point of both of those extremes are just that, that they're extreme and that they're wrong. The church is neither a highly contrived corporation nor is it a loosey-goosey commune. It's a living organism uh, that requires structure and organization to function. I want you to just stop and think with me uh, as everything that we've learned up to date in the book of Acts. If you think about the unity and power of the early church, it gave them a testimony that swept through Jerusalem and multitudes of people had come to faith in Jesus Christ. No persecution or opposition from the Jewish authorities could stop the spread of the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel. The church exploded in growth, and as a result, there was need for further organization. And what's interesting as we go through this, there was a number of new converts, there were members, someone must have been keeping count because we have a list to a certain point of how many people had come to faith in Christ. So there was some organization there. They met together at specific times and specific places so they knew where to meet and when to meet. And so there was organization and there was structure. But what, and, just, if you think, and sin had to be dealt with as we saw in Acts chapter 5. And so as we look through this, the church became further structured because of the growth that was taking place. And uh, it illustrates an important principle as we kind of outline or lay a foundation for what this passage is all about. And that's this, and I want you to listen very carefully. Biblical church organization always responds to needs and to what the Holy Spirit is already doing. Do you follow that? Biblical church organization always responds to needs... And what, the, and what the Holy Spirit is already doing. And that's 180 degrees different than, hey, you know what, this is what we're going to establish, and now, God, you're going to do something about it. Everything in life is summed up in the simplicity of this. Man plans his ways, but God directs his steps. God always has the final say. We may make plans, but we have to always be open in those plans to the leading of God. God always has the final say. You know, and for some of you who may not be familiar with this group that meets here, you know, it was 18 years ago when we had a handful of people. And, uh, it, and at that time, churches, and still to some degree churches do this, they have categories for people. If you're young married, you go to a young married Bible study. If you're married and you have children, you go to married with children. And if you're a little bit older, you go to something, something a little bit older. And if you're single, you go there. And if you're, you know, older than a certain age, you go there. And if you're 30 to 40, you go there. And, and, and one of the things is that we don't always fit in those neat categories. And so at that particular time, you know, it was like God was leading to say, hey, you know what, we need a Bible study that's open to anybody that wants to come. 
And if you've got people coming from out of town or guests or whatever, and you're in a young marriage class, you tell them, I'm sorry, you can't come because, you know, you're, you're an old married. You know, you're an old, tired married person, and we just want young, excited people that don't know what they're doing in life. <laughs> you know what I mean? We want a whole bunch of people that can commiserate and say, hey, are you having the same problem? So am I. Well, that's great. We're all excited about the fact we're having the same problem, but nobody has any direction or any wisdom to share, right? And so God led to what we do today, and it's a group of, a very eclectic group of people. And, uh, and that's okay because it was God's leading. And on top of that, in addition to that, when we started to meet, then there were people who said, you know what, there, there's so many people here. At the time there was 30 or 40. There's just too many people to get to know. So what, what are we going to do about it? So well, what do you think you should do about it? Well, we need smaller groups. Then, hey, guess what? Then why don't you go ahead and head them up? And then we have small groups, and we've got many small groups that meet, and we'll be talking more about that in the weeks to come. But it's important to understand if there was too many people at 30 or 40, they're certainly at 650. And so, you know, there was a need, and the need had arisen, and God moved in that direction, and we were obedient to follow. We had people come and say, hey, do you tape these messages? Uh, no, why? Wow, because, man, you know what, I, I wish I could have got a tape of that, because I'm thinking of somebody I'd like to give that tape to. Someone I work with, or a family member, or a friend that, you know, I'd love to give that tape to. Well, then I guess we better start taping them. If that's the need, then, you know, we need to respond to it. Today we've got people coming and saying, hey, can, can you get these in CDs? Because, you know, all the new cars now, they don't have tapes anymore. You know, and I'm thinking, man, we just moved from 8-tracks. How are we going to make such a leap? <laughs> you know, and you've got people saying, hey, but you know what? I, you know, we, we want a CD. Our car has a CD and I can't listen to a tape. Can you do something about it? And, and, you know, and I'm excited to say that that's the direction the Lord's leading. And you know what? Where God leads, then he'll provide. And the bottom line is if that's a need, then basically if you want to be a part of that, then just write on your check, Kindred Tapes at the bottom. And, we're going to, and, and because we are committed to get the Word of God to people in a, in a method in which they need it so that they can have it at their disposal. And if it's 8-tracks again, we'll go to 8-tracks. You know what I'm saying? If it's tapes, we'll go to tapes. If it's CD, we'll go to CD. And don't forget, we don't charge anyone for the message. You want a tape? Get a tape. You want a CD and we're, they're going to be available? Then get a CD. Because we are committed to follow the Lord's leading in our, and, and be obedient in our life. And uh, where God leads, He provides. You know, uh, some of you know, obviously most of you that have been here for a while know that I've been involved in athletic ministry for a number of years. You know, I worked with the NFL, now I work with Major League Baseball. And you know what? And that whole ministry was born out of a need. And the need was, you're taking professional athletes who play games on Sundays and don't have access to a local church. And they were starving for spiritual input. And the need arose that, hey, somehow or another, someone needs to step up and meet that need. And thank God that there were people that were obedient to God's leading. And in the NFL, now, here it is, 15 or 20 years later, four and a half hours before kickoff, you get the schedule and they hand them out and the coaches hand them out, four and a half hours before kickoff, chapel. There it is. It's right there. Major League Baseball is a little bit different because of, you know, some of the activities. I'll give you an example. I was speaking in a men's group yesterday in San Diego in the morning and one of the guys from the Angels called me and said, Chuck, because we got a problem for chapel tomorrow. I said, what? He goes, uh, our starting time has been moved from 105 to 505. And not only that, we have autograph sessions before that. So there's just not going to be any time to have chapel. I said, okay, well, how about tonight? He goes, you available tonight? I said, I'll make myself available tonight because our commitment is to get the word of God to people that have an interest and a hunger in hearing God's truth. So we met last night, and we had as many, if not more, people than we've had all year. And the reason that I bring that up is because so often we become so tunnel-visioned 
and so structured and so rigid that we're not open to God's leading. It's like, no, no, we, we meet on Sundays and here's the time that we meet. Man, you know what? I've learned through that ministry, you've got to be flexible to be able to accomplish the things that God would have you accomplish. Was it convenient? No. Did it mess up our last night's schedule? A little bit. But you know what, though? But that's life. And so God honors that. And we have to understand and be, be willing to realize that, you know, can, now compare that to a conversation I had recently with a leader of a local church who said that they were going to outsource to a professional group their small groups. I went, what? Yeah, we're gonna, we got it. There's a, there's a company that goes to churches and specializes in setting up small groups. And they'll come and they'll set up booths right out in the middle of, of wherever it is, your courtyard, and they'll have booths, man. You know, they have a booth for people that are left-handed and part their hair on the right side, uh, that are single, that have been married before, thinking about getting married again, but aren't sure today. Then they got another booth that's set up. And you know what I'm saying? It's like everything's such a specialized thing because that, that's what they do. Or they go to, hey, we're having a building program, and you know what? We need to turn to professional fundraisers. And that just breaks my heart. Because when you read the simplicity of the Word of God, if we would just be obedient to God's leading in our life, I think we would all be amazed at how much more God could accomplish through us who are not rigid in our structure, but open to God's leading. Yeah, man plans his ways. But you know what? God always has the final say. And we need to be open to that. You know, there's a thing called margin time that I've been reading about and hearing about. And that is to not have your life so filled, as Danny was saying as he led us in worship, not have your life so filled that there's no room for following the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. To be available for that moment in time where somebody calls you and says, hey, do you got time to talk? Well, I'm sorry, i got really a full schedule. Say, absolutely, i got time to talk. Are you sure I'm not bothering you? No, you're not bothering me at all. But I know you're busy. Yeah, I'm busy, but so what? If you know I'm busy, then what you have to talk about must be really important to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't bother me because you know I'm busy. So I'm thinking that, you know, it must be something that we need to deal with. And it's like allowing God to make room in your schedule for Him. What an interesting thought. The rest of us, it's kind of like, hey, God, you got an hour, man. Sunday morning, I'll give you an hour. And that's only if, you know, the guy can hold my interest. Because if he can't, then I'm checking out 20 minutes into it and I'm going to start my to-do list for what i got to do this week. So God, you fit into my schedule. And it doesn't work that way. Not my will, God, but yours. You know, show me the direction you want to go. See, in Acts chapter 6, a very practical, uh, a very practical chapter on spiritual organization. The church faced its first serious organizational crisis. And to eliminate a potentially divisive problem required further organization. And from this organizational meeting, there are four features that stand out that I want to share with you. I want you to consider. And and we're going to look at them one at a time. The first one is found in verses uh, 1, 2, and 4. And it has to do with the reason that this organizational structure took place. The reason for it. There were complaints. Something wasn't going right. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of the food. You know, there's no 
estimate at this point of how many people were in the church in Jerusalem at this time, but all that we need to do is look at the numbers that were given to us already, and we realize that at one point there was 3,000, then there was 5,000, and that just counted men. And so if you add women and children to it, you realize that the early church at this particular point had already grown to 20 to 25,000 people. And if you can imagine trying to deal with such rapid growth, there were problems that came along with that. Without mass communication, uh, you think about the, the leadership and administrative problems associated with such a long, large congregation uh, were enormous. And, you know, merely to meet the spiritual task of just making disciples of all these people, which means teaching them the word of God, baptizing them as Jesus commanded in Matthew 28, you know, to go into the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. I mean, just that alone was, it was a daunting task yet alone with the practical, everyday experiences that were going on. They were caring for the physical needs of people who had tremendous needs. And think about just administrating such a program, so to speak. There was another reason that the church had to organize, and that was they had totally saturated Jerusalem with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus said that you shall, when you receive the Spirit of God, be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the outermost parts of the earth. They had fulfilled the first calling, which was, let's saturate Jerusalem with the Word of God. Let's saturate it with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That took place. There was nobody left. Can you imagine? There was nobody left in Jerusalem that hadn't heard that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world, for those who believe, and rose again and was alive today. Every person heard that. And so now they were, okay, well, how do we begin to reach Judea and Samaria? And then what are we going to do when it came time to reach the outermost parts of the world? They needed to come up with a strategy to be able to do it. You know, it's interesting. I thought about how convicting that statement is, and that that simply is this. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our Jerusalem was saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Ask yourself the question, in the circles in which God has placed you, has every person that you've come in contact with been told of the tragedy of sin and the separation from God? And the wages of sin is death, and that's why we all die, because we're all guilty before God. But the good news is this, that God so loved the world that He didn't send a committee, but He sent His Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life that Jesus Christ died for you as an individual. And He rose again and conquered death so that He could offer you eternal life and forgiveness of God. Wouldn't that be a wonderful truth that if every person that came into your life and your family and your friends and your neighborhood and your businesses, your employees, your employer, your suppliers, your vendors, your creditors, every person, your people that do your hair and put gas in your car or work on your vehicles, every person that you come in contact with that you buy things from at the store, the people you regularly see on, on a regular basis, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if that... Jerusalem of yours was saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I can tell you that mine isn't. And I need to do a better job of being more vocal for Jesus. See, they had to strategize and they needed to organize to strategize. The reason that they got together was because there was a complaint 
You stop and think about it. Here was an issue that Satan could use with devastating force against the church. He had already tacked it persecution from the outside, and that didn't work. And in fact, if anything, the persecution led to phenomenal growth. So it didn't work from the outside, so he began to tack it in Acts chapter 5 from the inside. And he introduced sin in its membership. Ananias and Sapphira sinned before God, and God exposed and judged their sin so that the church wouldn't have been destroyed from within. And now he introduces another method to attack the body of believers, and the third one was to create dissension within the church. See, a church that's racked by internal conflict finds its message lost, and on top of it, its energy dissipated. See, we're so busy fighting one another that we're not reaching our Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the outermost parts of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're so busy wondering what others are doing that we don't have time to do anything ourselves. I'm always amazed at people that wonder sometimes what I do and what I'm doing and what I'm up to. And it's like, man, you know what? It's funny that you would wonder so much about my life because I haven't thought about you at all. You know, and, and I don't mean that in any other way that I've just been too busy doing what I know that God has called me to do and wants me to do that, you know, you know how are you doing and what are you doing and, you know, oh, you're keeping track of me. <laughs> well, that's a waste of your time. You know, because I can't believe you're going to stand before the Lord one day and say, hey, remember I kept track of Chuck for you. <laughs> you know? And, and so we look at that, and we see churches all the time. You know, there was a need, and there was division within their ranks. And so basically what happened was that at this time, while this rapid growth was going on, and the numbers were increasing, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. A quick understanding of history, the Hellenistic Jews were Jews who were part of the diaspora, which was the spreading of Jews throughout the world. They had returned to Jerusalem at Passover time. They did not speak Hebrew or Aramaic as the local Jews did. They spoke Greek. And the Hellen, Hellenistic Jews were Greek-speaking. The Hebrews were those who spoke, uh, spoke Aramaic and Hebrew. And so there was a division between the two. And the Hellenistic Jews were smaller in number. And what had happened was they came to Passover to celebrate Passover. But while they were there, they were introduced to Jesus Christ. And they had accepted Christ as their Savior. And they stayed in order to be taught by the apostles. And so they were part of the body of Christ or the local church. And so now there was this minority group who were involved in the local church and they felt that they were being slighted because they weren't on the in crowd. Can you believe that there was actually a problem of cliques in a local church? That's just so unheard of. I just, so, you know, I just have to trust that history is accurate here. And that people actually, you know, they, they actually had favoritism. There were actually people on the in-group and the out-group. There were people that felt welcome and people that didn't feel welcome at all. Can you believe that? Thank God it's not like that here. You know, what's fascinating is you look at this, and so what they were saying was, notice what they said. They said that, um, and the twelve some of the congregation together. And, and the bottom line is in verse 1, the, their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. The fact that they said their widows collectively indicates they felt the neglect was deliberate. You are deliberately slighting our widows and you're taking care of your own. And man, what a, what a convicting statement that is. You're taking care of yours, but not ours. And that sense of division that was there that was you and us. Us versus them. As if somehow or another they weren't one in the body of Christ. 
You know, I mean, we need to be practical in a lot of ways, and that's this. You know what? I mean, the divisions aren't always divisive. Let me give you a simple illustration. I learned this from, from being involved with athletics. You take a football team, for example, and the offensive line hangs out and they go to dinner together because they spend most of their time together. The defensive line goes to dinner together. The defensive secondary goes to dinner together. The, the running backs and quarterback goes to, the, the, to dinner together. Not everybody always gets together to go to dinner together because it's just not practical to do that. And yet at the same time, they're committed to their team as an overall whole of accomplishing their goal, which is to bring about victory. I was at the stadium last night. You know, the pitchers hang out together, the relief pitchers, the starting pitchers, uh, the position players, they all hang out together because they spend most of their time together. And it's not an exclusive thing whatsoever. We all gather together and we have a common bond when we come together to study and to learn the Word of God. But the reality in a practical way is division isn't always divisive. It's practical, it's functional. And it's no different in a local church. You have a college group, a high school group, you've got a group like this. We've got several groups that meet simultaneously on this campus. And that's not a bad thing. It is how God accomplishes His purpose in the midst of each of those groups. What becomes a bad thing is when we start to point fingers at one another and say that, you know what, you're not part of our group so we don't care about you. Or you're doing this thing and it's causing a problem with my thing. And it's like, well, wait a minute, what do you mean your thing? I mean, the bottom line is that God is leading everyone and equipping different people for the work of ministry in different areas. And I say, man, if there's a million people in the college program, I praise God. If they're going on a retreat or a houseboat trip or whatever, I don't think like any of us should feel left out because, well, we didn't get invited. And some of us will go, praise God you didn't invite us. <laughs> Last thing I want to do is go on a houseboat with a bunch of college kids. You know, but the reality of, of what is going on here is that the us versus them is something that individual people contrive in their own mind and turn it into something competitive and so, instead of something cooperative. Praise God, we're all on the same team trying to reach people for Jesus Christ. You know, that spirit of competitivism, unfortunately, found its way into the early church. You're taking care of yours, you're not taking care of ours, and we got a problem here. But the wonderful thing about it is the problem had gotten to a point where it was brought before the, the, uh, the uh, apostles. They felt that it was a legitimate problem. They needed to meet that problem head on. And notice what it says. It says, And the twelve summoned the congregation and said that it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. When you're talking about the word tables, basically what it had to do is money or financial matters. And it meant that there were people that were responsible to divvy out the money or the food in this case to those who had need. And so that was the very practical or real problem. And what Paul was saying, I mean, when you look at this, what he was saying was, hey, you know what? It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order that we serve tables. It wasn't desirable to neglect the word of God in order that we serve tables. And so he was trying to separate, and two truths emerge. Number one, the first truth is, that many in ministry today have left the emphasis of prayer and the Word of God. They've left the emphasis of prayer and the Word of God. They're so involved in the administrative details of their church that they have little time left for prayer and for study. They're more involved in programs and what we need to offer people than they are in their initial calling or specific calling, which is the equipping of saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4.12. The calling of any pastor is to preach the word of God after prayer and preparation so that he equips the congregation for the work of ministry. 
That is his job description according to the Word of God. And it's important that we understand that. Programs will never be a substitute for the power of God and His Word. just won't. You can have all the programs in the world, but if God's not in it, nothing's going to happen. And if God's leading, then you follow Him and you get organized behind Him and do whatever you have to do to meet those needs. But programs will never be a substitute for the power of the Word of God and prayer. Just can't. And that's why you see you know, churches that have millions of programs with absolutely no spiritual depth to them whatsoever. They've become any other social group or social club. They have no power of the Spirit of God behind them. And as a result, many are frustrated in the process. I will boldly make the statement that is any pastor who would rather administrate programs or promote activities or events than spend time praying and preparing and proclaiming the Word of God is in the wrong position. And the body of believers, the church as a whole, will be negatively impacted by such a decision. And that's what we're learning very clearly. Prayer and the ministry of the Word were inseparably linked. I want you to consider for a moment the Apostle Paul, the greatest proclaimer of God's Word who ever lived. He was a man who was devoted to prayer. Notice what he said. He assured the Romans that God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness in how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. To the Ephesians, he said, if I do not... He says... I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. To the Philippians who wrote, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you. To the church of the Colossians, he said, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and the spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul's passion for the Word of God was equal to his devotion and prayer. Every time he sat down to prepare a message... He prayed that God would honor the Word of God through him and that he would be a a, a very clean vessel, so to speak. Every time I speak, I pray the prayer of John the Baptist, and that was, Lord, that you may increase and that I would decrease. That when people leave, they see Christ and they see the Word of God and the principles of truth, and they don't walk out saying, gee, wasn't he a funny guy or wasn't he a good speaker? And And the focus is not on me. I could care less. You know, it was, you know it was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me? For two years I worked with the angels and several of the guys never knew my name. They never knew my name and we had ongoing relationship with one another. It just shows you they're pretty shallow sometimes, but the, the reality of it was. That, that, but, but they remembered, you know, many of the Bible studies. So, you know, I, oh, you know, I forget the guy who's teaching us Bible study, but man, we're learning a bunch Forget the guy's name. And, you know, and so I felt like bad, you know. It's like, oh, you don't even know who I am. And then the other side of it was, well, wait, that'll be a good illustration for something sometime. <laughs> so I pulled it out of the closet this week. There you go. A lot of the old illustration bag. But, uh, you know, think about it. You know, every, every time anybody prepares the Word of God, they should be praying. If you're a small group leader or a teacher in, a, in another setting, you should be praying as you prepare the Word of God. Prayer. Preparation practice than proclaiming. That's the way it works. And you should be praying that God's Spirit would penetrate the hearts of those who hear the message, that they would become obedient, receptive to the Word, and obedient in doing and not only hearing. 
Paul serves as an appropriate model of the commitments of the Word of God that ministry demands. If you're in the book of Acts, turn with me to Acts chapter 20 for a second. Acts chapter 20, verse 18. It's a beautiful example, a role model of the importance of preaching the Word of God. Acts chapter 20, let's see, let's start with verse 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called them the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said this, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you, with the, whole, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which come upon, came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything... Notice, that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the essence of the gospel. Turn from sin, turn to God, trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and the Bible says that you shall be saved. That's the simplicity of it. But I want you to notice two things that stood out when I was reading this. The first one is this, that I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. The first thing I thought of was all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for changing, for, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequately equipped to do the work of God. First thing, he said, hey, you know what, I taught you truth and it was profitable to you. The second thing is, it goes along with it, he says, and teaching you publicly. He was obedient to Jesus Christ who said, go into all the world baptizing and also what? And the teaching. Teaching them and bringing to remembrance the things that I had told you. And lo, I am with you always till the end of the age, he said. So he was committed to the teaching of the word of God. The preparing of it. The praying for, for beforehand. The publicly living it out. And then proclaiming the message of truth. That was his commitment. He said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 15, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct, love, faith, purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance, through the laying of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them, so that your progress may be evident to all. He was telling Timothy to be devoted to the public proclaiming of the word of God and teaching God's truth. To not get sidetracked by other things that were going on. I have always and will continue to guard the time that I have so that I always have time to adequately prepare in order to proclaim the truth of God's word. My wife was asked a while ago by a senior pastor of a very large church this question. When does Chuck find time to study? She couldn't believe it, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe, and she couldn't believe, that someone who had been called to preach and proclaim the Word of God was asking how a person finds time to study the Word of God. You don't find time, you make time. You don't find time, you make time. It becomes a priority. It's not an option. It's not like I go through a week going, uh, oh man, it's Sunday already. I guess I better prepare because maybe someone may show up. And if they do, boy, that sure would be a bummer if I just looked at you like sometimes you look at others when you go to your small groups and are supposed to prepare your Bible study or do your, do your homework or whatever it is that you do and you go, oh, I just had a, uh, I had a busy week. Duh. Really? Wow, you're the first person I've ever met that's had a busy week. 
can you sign this for me? It's like, wow, the first busy person I ever met has an A. As we heard, we're all busy. What's a priority? You go through the week and go, man, you know what? I better get my studying done Wednesday because I don't want to miss ER on Thursday. Yeah, you laugh about it, but you know what? I struggle with those kind of decisions every day like you do. It's like, man, I praise God when, you know, there's like this lull in the sports season. I'm not as tortured as I usually am. It's kind of like, oh, good, you know, I can make it work now. Man, but I hate when they all overlap. It's just, oh, it's troubling. Priorities, right? I mean, that's what it comes down to. The second truth is this. I mentioned the first one, and, is, and that is that anyone who's called in the ministry has to find time for prayer and, and proclamation of the Word of God after preparation because that's what they're supposed to do. But the other side of it is this. We must make sure that we encourage those who are gifted to do so to do just that. And what happens in most churches are we try to crowd out the time that a pastor would have to study and prepare and to pray and to teach the, and to teach the Word of God by laying guilt trips on them that they can't be at every function that's going on in their local church. Think about how large a church this is. And if you got invited to everything that was going on, when would you have time to prepare and to study and to pray for the proclamation of the Word of God. And if you didn't choose, hey, I'm sorry, I can't, but I have set aside a certain amount of time, that's non-negotiable. I'm a little more flexible. I might be able to move from one day to the next to the other, whatever, but man, you know what, I'm focused and locked in, and that is, you know, and my family all knows it because the only time they all want to talk to me is when I'm studying. It's like when you go in the bathroom, huh, ladies? The only time your kids want to talk to you is when you go in the bathroom. It's like, would you please, just one place, leave me alone for just two seconds. You know, mom, knock on the door. That's if you shut it. And then, you know, and, and all that goes along with it. But, but that's the way that it is. So we must encourage those whose primary calling is to preach and proclaim the word of God, to spend time studying and praying, and to get off their case, back off, let them do what it is that they need to do, because the church as a whole will benefit if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is equipping the, the saints for the work of ministry. The second thing is there was a requirement. And the requirement was, in verse 3, that they had to have people. And here's what, here's what the game plan was. The game plan was, but select. The problem, we see it the contrast, but. There's a problem, the problem is what? There's division within the ranks, there's complaints, there's grumbling. One side feels they're left out at the expense of another side. And so, man, there's just all kind of confusion. But here was the, here was the solution. The solution was, the apostle said, look, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. We're not going to allow that to happen. The apostle said, we are not going to let that happen to us. The size of this congregation, the problems of this congregation are not going to squeeze our primary purpose and mission before God, which is to, pro, to pray and prepare and, and, and to practice and to proclaim the word of God. But that doesn't mean we don't care about what's going on around us. So here's the solution to the problem. But what? Select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of the task. There it is. Very simple. The solution was going to be found in the character of individuals within the body of Christ. Let me just share with you five characteristics for the appointing of church leaders, okay? Those who would lead the church must be, notice in verse 3, men. Now, before you go off on me, let me just say a couple of things. Women certainly have vital roles to fill in the, early, in the church. In fact, in the early church, notice, people like Dorcas and Lydia and Phoebe and Priscilla and Philip's daughters were greatly used by God. Nevertheless, God's design for the church is that men assume leadership roles. 
Read 1 Corinthians 11, 3, 8, 9, 14, 34, 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's very clear and it's very obvious that that's God's design for leadership in the church. And it no way diminishes the role of women. In fact, the prominence of the women that I just mentioned in the culture in which they found themselves was, was earth-shattering and groundbreaking uh, um, news. Women were not looked upon as anything less than second-class citizens, and Jesus Christ elevated them to the position where they deserve as men, or women in this case, who were fellow heirs of Jesus Christ. They had tremendous prominence in the early church. It was just God's structure for the church and leadership is that he called men to lead. You know, and if you stop and think about it, God's plan has always been for men to be servant leaders in the home, in the church, in the community. Now listen to me very carefully, women. The worst thing that you can do is say, I want to take that leadership position. Most women that I know are frustrated with their husbands or men in their life because they do not assume a spiritual leadership position in their family. Is that not true, ladies? You want your man to take a leadership position. And yet at the same time, when he tries to lead, you want to usurp his position. It's kind of like, oh, you know what? Well, if you're leading that direction, I ain't going. If you lead this way, and here's the book on how we would have you lead in the direction we would have you go. You know, so it's kind of like the constant struggle that goes on. And it goes back to sin nature, which was, you know, God warned Adam and Eve that Eve would want to usurp her husband's position of authority. Your desire will be for him, but not in a good way, in a negative way, of taking his position away. Listen to me, and listen very carefully. Rather than fight, let's let... Let's encourage men to set, step up and answer the call to be leaders in their homes. I spoke at a men's retreat yesterday, and that's exactly what I said. Rather than fight their leadership, pray for them, and let's pray that they'll step up and become the spiritual leader that God wants them to be in your home, in your community, in your church. Because that's God's plan. The second thing was, the requirement was, notice this, it was choose from among you. Isn't that simple? That's profound. And yet, at the same time, when churches are looking for a position to fill, they go out into the community like any other Fortune 500 company, and they send headhunters out, and people that are looking for people that, hey, we got an opening, and we're looking for such and such a pastor. And the ridiculous part of all that is, is that here's the simplicity of the Word of God saying, hey, listen, choose from among you. There are godly people in your midst that God is leading, that God has equipped to serve this local body. They know the people that are here already. They've already got a relationship with them. They've already got a reputation. The people already trust them. They know who they are. But it's like, oh, no, you don't want to do that. We're going to go ahead and we're going to go send headhunters out to find people to fill local pastoral positions. It's crazy. And yet it happens all over. And so because it happens all over, that must be the way to do it. No different than, hey, that's everybody turns to fundraisers, so we've got to turn to fundraisers. Everybody outsources their small groups, so we're going to outsource our small groups. And everybody sends out you know, uh, headhunters to find uh, pastors to fill a position, so we're going to do that. And, and what? At the expense of the simplicity of what God says? Choose from among you. There you are, and you already know them. Choose from among you. The third requirement was what? That they would have good reputations. Choose from among you seven men of good reputation. Meaning what? They already knew them. 
They already trusted them. They had already demonstrated that they had servants' hearts. They already demonstrated their love for the Lord. You didn't have to kind of go through a feel-me-out process of trying to decide whether or not this is the right person or not. They already knew it. Men of good reputation. And if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we know that men of good reputation are men who have personal integrity. They're not double-tongued. Uh, they're, they're, not, they're not addicted to, to much wine. And, and they're not fond of sordid gain. Think about that as a requirement. What if God hadn't judged Ananias? And he had developed a false reputation, which is what others think of you rather than character, who you really are. And others thought, wow, here was a generous, spiritual-minded guy. And you know what? When it was time to select these seven, maybe he would have gotten chosen. And guess where he would have been? In the midst of handling the money. Could you think of anybody dirtier than him deciding who got money and who got food? God took care of that problem before it ever surfaced. Men of good reputation. They were full of the Spirit. Meaning they were yielded to God and His control over their life. There are men who already demonstrated that they were in love with Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And the Word of God is what drove them to make decisions in their life. The final requirement is that they possess wisdom. Notice that. You know what wisdom is, very simply? knowing how to use knowledge in a right way before God. Wisdom is taking what God has already taught you and being able to apply it in very practical terms. What did they learn about God? What did they learn about the distribution of funds? What did they learn about meeting the needs of others? Hey, wisdom would then make that very real and very practical. And that's exactly who they chose. Another great example of it, when you have a a chance, read Exodus chapter 18, where Jethro had the idea to Moses that, hey, you know what, we need to delegate here, because this is is a mess. I like what D.L. Moody said, it's better to put ten men to work than to try to do the work of ten men. And that's God's program, by the way. God wants all of us to be equipped for the work of service. He doesn't want one person. You know, this isn't a spectator sport where you go to the stadium last night, 40,000 people go to the angel game to watch nine people uh, work. Unfortunately, a lot of times that's the nature of the church. You know, thousands of people come to watch a few people, you know, do the work. And that's not right. And the reason that happens is because the Word of God's not being taught. And if the Word of God's being taught, and you begin to realize you've been gifted by God, you've been equipped to serve Him, then you begin to feel convicted about, well, what should I be doing? And then as you teach the truth of the Word of God, God leads you in a direction. You may plan your way, but the Lord directs your steps. The next thing you know, you found yourself in a position of service to, to the kingdom of God. And God will use you. Instead of sitting back and watching everybody else, you need to get busy. And if the Word of God is being taught, then you should walk away feeling convicted. You know what? I need to get involved. And as a knee comes up and it's thrown out, then God will penetrate your heart. That's exactly what happened with people that stepped up and said, the couple that said, hey, we're going to head up small groups. You know, God's really been convicting our hearts. And He's moving us in that direction. And they checked it out. They prayed about it. And God led them to it. And now they're going to serve in that capacity. And they'll serve with passion. And they'll serve with, with, with enthusiasm. You know, I love what I read this past week. This is my new quote for my life. And that is that, find something you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life. Is that good? All right, two more. The roster, here it was. Yeah, people are killing me sometimes. Say, there it is. We will devote ourselves to the prayer and the ministry of the word. Here it is in verse 5. Notice, in the statement found full approval with the congregation... They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. It found full approval 
and they, and, and they chose these men from, from a, in their own congregation. What's interesting about it is this, that every one of them were Hellenistic Jews. I mean, every one of them, uh, yeah, every one of them, uh, when, when you look at that, were Greek-speaking Jews. Isn't that great? They're saying, look, if you feel like your people are being shortchanged, then you know what? Then we want you to handle it, and you take care of it. Isn't that great? That's, that's beautiful. It's like, then you take care of it. Because we know that you'll be fair. Because we already know you meet the requirements. You're full of the Spirit of God. You're full of wisdom. You've got good reputations. We trust that you will take care of it and you won't do the flip on it. Okay, now watch this. We're going to take care of ours and now at your expense. They trusted him. And the result was continuity. Look at verse 7. Is this a beautiful statement or what? Continuity. And the Word of God kept on spreading. And the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem... And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Isn't that great? The word of God continued to be proclaimed. And people continued to be added to the numbers of those who believed because they had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had put their faith and trust in him and they were added to the numbers. And you know what? And God's program didn't miss a beat because they stepped up and did what they needed to do. The church was unified, magnified, and multiplied as it had been and they had, met the, they had met the challenge that was there. I love the statement that even the priests were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. At the time, there were 8,000 priests with the temple duty in Jerusalem. And it says, And many of them, when they heard the truth of Jesus Christ, trusted in Him, and not in their religion or their ritual, to be saved from the condemnation of God. And even many of the priests. What a powerful testimony the Word of God has in the local community. The church today needs to be organized for the same reasons as that first fellowship. Pastors need to be focused on the preaching of the Word of God in prayer, and better organization can help meet the needs of those who God adds to the numbers. And a unified, well-taught church will be a powerful witness to a lost world. Father, thank you for your Word, the clarity of it. We just pray that as we hear it, that we become obedient in the doing. God, we just love you. We praise you for your word. We just thank you that it gives direction in every area of our life. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we just thank you for these things. In Christ's name, amen.